following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for your son who is the word. Thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding of your word and who, Lord, inspired it, brought it about. Just give us understanding now. May your spirit work at us to know and be able to apply what we have here. And I pray most of all that just in our time together, you would use your word to magnify Christ, to excite us all the more to want to know him and to be with him. God, stir our hearts to love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I came across a story last week of a man who had taken his pastor deer hunting for the first time. Uh, So they went out. This was the pastor's first time going. And it was several days went by. They didn't even spot a deer. And so the pastor suggested they just pack it up because he didn't, didn't relish the fact of spending another night in the cold. And so... They decided to give it one more day, and they're glad they did because the next day, early in the morning, they spotted a buck who was in the clearing very wide open. They both got so excited because this is the first one that they saw that they both took a shot at the same time. The deer fell, so they had to decide at that point who actually should get credit for the shot. And so after approaching the deer, the man gave it a scan, he looked it over, and then he looked up at the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm certain that you are the one who killed this deer. The preacher then asks, well, that's great, but then how can you be so sure? Well, a man looking again at the deer and then looking up to pastor said, well, the bullet that killed it must have come from your rifle, pastor, because it went in in one ear and out the other. (laughs) You got that one, huh? Now, I would never accuse any of you of that. (laughs) But there are a number of pastors who do feel that way. In fact, there are a number of Old Testament prophets who I'm sure felt that way. In fact, most of them, right? Jeremiah was ignored for his entire ministry. Isaiah ended up being martyred. Amos was told to go away and go back to his home. They didn't want to hear from him. Elijah was often dismissed or threatened. There were many prophets. In fact, prophet after prophet, he usually saw his message go in one ear and out the other. But that wasn't the case for Haggai. We looked at his first message in Haggai chapter 1 last time that I was here, and we saw that they actually responded to his message. They had responded to what he had to say. It was very favorable, in fact. If you remember, Haggai was one of two prophets that God had raised up to the people of Judah in order to encourage them, to exhort them to rebuild the temple. And it was a temple that the Babylonians had left in complete ruin After the third siege, they uh, destroyed Jerusalem completely in 586 B.C., burned everything to the ground, including the temple. It's about 50 years after that that the Persian king Cyrus, who had defeated Babylon, he made a decree. He made a decree to the exiles who were in the land of Babylon, now, now Persia, and said that if any of you want to go back and rebuild your temple, that he would allow it. That included the people of Judah. And so they took him up on his offer. 
About 50,000 of them went back, Ezra 2 tells us, and they went back to the land of Judah. Most of them had never even seen Judah. Many of them had been born during the exile, but they went back anyway. And not long after they arrived, they rebuilt the altar that had stood in front of Solomon's temple on the very spot where that original altar had stood. And then they got to work on the temple itself. They got to work, finished the foundation. And if you remember from the last time we were looking at Ezra, we saw the fact that they stopped the work. There were many in the land who were not favorable to them being there and definitely didn't want to see the Jews reestablish themselves. The, the Samaritans and other foreigners who were living in the land had been brought there during the time of the Assyrians. And so they did everything they could to thwart the temple's reconstruction. They used threats, political maneuvering, and so they got the people to stop work on the temple. And that work had stopped for about 16 years it wasn't until God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to rebuild. And we saw in Haggai's first message that rather than bringing a word of encouragement to the people, Haggai brought them a word of rebuke. Remember that line two times he repeated, consider your ways, think about your actions, set your heart upon the things that you've been doing. And he said that because there had been a drought in the land, a drought that God had brought in order to get their attention. For you see, their actions, or really their inaction, the problem was they had neglected to do the work God had wanted them to do. They had neglected to rebuild the temple. They had drifted from their priority. To them, the temple had become something that wasn't that important. Hey, we got the altar up. That's, that's good enough. To them, the, this, this building that represented God's presence among them was no longer that vital. No longer was a place of corporate worship that they would gather that much of a priority. And really in all of that, they were reflecting the fact from their very own hearts that God was not central within their lives. That He wasn't the main priority. They'd become apathetic. Apathetic towards God and apathetic towards what He wanted. They lost focus. They lost focus on their mission. The mission that God had given them Their attention moved to other things, really to their own comforts, to their own needs, to their own way of life. Again, they they took the wood that originally was intended to be for the temple structure and they used it to panel their own houses, totally neglecting what God had called them to do. And beloved, I know this is mostly a review, but I'm reiterating it because I'm compelled again as I was reflecting on Haggai's message from chapter 1, as I was thinking about it, I'm compelled to remind you that you and I are all susceptible, just as susceptible as the people of Judah to the same trap that they fell into. We are all very susceptible to apathy, to drifting, to losing focus of our mission, to getting our central uh, focus upon things that we need to do, things that we need to accomplish. And we become inactive. We are vulnerable to the God not being our priority, to the things that we want to do becoming greater, of greater importance than Him. Something I'm very fearful of. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Ephesians 5.15 when he said, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So that then do not be foolish, he goes on to say, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. Paul here really gives, I think, very practical instruction as to how we can avoid falling into the same pit that the people of Judah did. 
He tells us to redeem the time that you've been given, to make the most of the opportunity. Every day, every hour, every moment, focusing on what God wants. He says there to to know his will, to understand his will. That's what God wants. That's what his will means. And then to live it out by the power of his spirit, by being filled by his spirit. And, you know, a lot of times when I hear messages from that passage in particular in Ephesians 5, talking about redeeming your time, I'll, I'll hear many things about application, about making schedules and being disciplined with your schedule. And that's not what he's talking about here. Schedules aren't bad. But the focus is or the issue is what is on that schedule? What is the central? What does that schedule reflect about the priority of your life? Are you taking advantage, making the most of redeeming the time that's listed out on that schedule? Is Christ and serving him the focus of what you do, whether at home or at church or at school or various activities and responsibilities that you have? Where is Jesus in all of that? Are you redeeming the time? Are you redeeming the time to serve Christ? Paul expresses the importance of it. He doesn't just say, hey, everybody, make sure you, you know, you're keeping your schedule and serving the Lord. Notice he gives here a, a degree of importance that, that we are in a dangerous time. The days are evil, he says. That's why we're to redeem the time. Because we live in days that are wicked days. Satan roams about the world. Sin is rampant. Murder, violence, abortion, rape, injustice, greed, blasphemy, divorce, adultery, immorality, gay marriage, pornography, evolution, godless psychology, false religions, families that are being ripped apart, people that are falling into sin and its consequences all the time, many on their way to hell. So Paul says, the days are evil, redeem the time, make the most of the opportunity in the days that you have. And so, saint, again, I would ask you, are you making the most of your time? Are you redeeming it? How are you using each day? Do you live for eternity or for the here and now? I think of many examples in Scripture of Jesus, for one. He made the most of his time, didn't he? Even on the cross, even while he was dying, he was saving the man next to him. And then even as he was bleeding out, he was declaring the need for those before him as murderers, they needed to be forgiven. When Paul was imprisoned, right, he didn't waste his time. He didn't have a deck of cards with him just playing games all day, or, right? He didn't mope about. He redeemed his time. He wrote letters to the churches to encourage, to exhort, to instruct them. He was witnessing all the time with his guards, with those who would visit. One time, even when he was in prison, he was singing, singing hymns. And you remember where that led, right? The jailer and his family coming to know Christ. I think of John Bunyan sitting in a prison cell 12 years apart from his wife and his children. How did he use his time? Did he lament and mope about? He spent it coming up with what has become the most popular and most profound Christian book in all history, Pilgrim's Progress. And in fact, you can learn more about its many wonderful and beautiful and very clear illustrations that he gives of the Christian life. There's a lot of depth and wisdom there, and you can learn more about that if you come Sunday night to Pastor Ed's class. He's going through that book and the many great and wonderful truths, and I would encourage you to, to do that. It's so neat because it's, it gives a picture, a scene. It's not just a, a description of a, um, it's not just a teaching, but he, he shows that teaching and these key truths of the faith in pictures that you can remember. It's an excellent book. 
See, these men and, and so many others, they were aware of this thing, that they lived in evil days, that they needed to make every moment count for Christ. They were centered upon God's will. I know for us, it's so easy to get distracted. I know that. I get distracted. It's so easy to get sucked into the consumer mentality of our culture. It's so easy to lose sight of our real priority. And that's exactly what happened to the people of Judah. They did not redeem the time nor the resources that God had given them. They didn't glorify God by treating what, by treating what He wanted as their main priority. They lost their focus. So God withheld the rain to get their attention. Then He sent Haggai to confront their apathy and to direct their focus back to the Lord. We saw that in Haggai 1.8. And if you're not in Haggai, by the way, make your way over there. It's a few books to the left of Matthew. But he said in Haggai 1.8, God did through Haggai, he says, Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. And indeed, we see later in that chapter, just a few verses later, that Haggai's message did not go one ear and out the other. It says that the people obeyed, that they feared the Lord. Then in verse 15, it notes that the temple, the reconstruction on the temple work resumed just just a few days after, three weeks, in fact, after his message. And it would seem that, well, that would be a good place to stop the book, right? There was a problem. God's people, God raised up Haggai, he delivered the message. The people repented, showed a desire to serve the Lord and break them out of their apathy. And, and so they begin rebuilding the temple all is well. That's a great story. But all wasn't well. We see Haggai's book has another chapter for it turns out that when the people, when they started to work on, work on the temple again, they again faced opposition. Imagine that. <laughs> when God reveals his will, they, they make a, a desire and effort to fulfill that will. And then they come up with opposition again. And re- by the way, it was the same kind of thing that they encountered 16 years earlier. It's almost like Satan saying, well, you know, it worked before. I'm going to try it again. So Ezra 5 talks about their enemies uh, that came up again to oppose them, to try to thwart their efforts. We also learn that the, the ruined condition of the temple was still a source of great discouragement among the people, particularly those who had seen Solomon's temple. And so the Lord prompts Haggai to give a second message. And we see that message in Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I would ask again if you'd please stand as we read God's word and read his second message through the prophet. He says, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house 
will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And now, Lord, may you give us understanding. Show us the beautiful and wonderful things within your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, in this second message, we see a definite change in tone compared to the first one. In the first message, Haggai's tone was one of exhortation. In this one, it is one of encouragement. The first message, they were commanded to repent and rebuild. In the second one, it is to take courage and rebuild. First message showed more of the firm hand of the father. In the second, we see more of his gentle hand. Again, the second message is meant to encourage And in the message, as we dig into it and look and see how it was an encouragement to the people of Judah, we're going to find encouragement for us. Because redeeming the time is not easy, is it? When you make a decision to live a life that is sold out for Christ, it will have its obstacles. Making Jesus a priority will bring about hardship and opposition, right? And so too we face discouragement. We too can find ourselves disheartened. Disheartened by persecution, being sinned against, not seeing fruit in our lives or in the lives of others, or when we experience or see disunity among God's people, or when we face difficult trials, even and especially those within our own homes. Like the people of Judah, we too can feel like just giving up. But through Haggai, God has a word for us, a word of encouragement. And that word is expressed in two main points. First is to be encouraged by God's presence, and the second, be encouraged by His plan. First point, be encouraged by God's presence, we see in verses 1 through 5. If you go back to verse 1, you'll notice that Haggai here gives the date of this second message, and he says that it took place on the 21st day of the seventh month. This is a little less than a month after they had begun reconstruction on the temple. And it's important that we understand a few things about this seventh month in Israel's religious calendar. The seventh month is the month of Tishri. And we can read about it in Numbers 29, Leviticus 23, the various events and things that they were to carry out in this month. The first day that was to be celebrated was the Feast of Trumpets. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, they were to recognize Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then on the fifteenth to the twenty-first day of the month, they were to celebrate what was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkoth. It was the time when the people basically have a national camp out and they'd have these tents they would live in for seven days. And they, it was meant in order to remind them of the time that they were in the wilderness with the temporary structures that they lived in there and how God took care of his people at that time. And so in the seventh month and the 15th to 21st days, they were to to live in these tents as a reminder of that, a celebration we also learn in Exodus 23:16 that in the midst of that feast of booths they were also to celebrate what was called the feast of the ingathering. This time of year was a time when there would be a harvest and so the Lord wanted them to celebrate that harvest by giving back a tithe from part of what they had taken in during the harvest. And also too as part of the feast of ingathering they were to give thank offerings for what God had provided. So again, there's this idea of the celebration of God's provision during that week. This was a very important week. And so at the end of this week, on the 21st day of that seventh month, that is when Haggai received this message from the Lord. Again, it's likely as part of the feast that there were many people gathered around the Temple Mount. 
And as they were gathering there, they had certainly noticed throughout the week that the temple was still not in very good condition. The foundation was there, but it was kind of a little bit decay rusty. There's still stones everywhere. Perhaps some of the burnt wood was still there. I don't know if they cleared it off earlier. But essentially the temple was in its current condition, in a condition of, of ruin. So the people are there noticing not much progress had been made, partly perhaps due to the fact they were so busy during that seventh month. But also, too, remember, this was a time that they had been bringing their tithes, right, and their offerings. And how, how big were their tithes have been at this time, at this point? They'd just gone through the drought, right? So as they're carrying up their little amounts of, of offering, they'd be reminded of that. They had come through that. So you could see they might be a little bit discouraged, right? And there may have been some Jews gathered there who, those who were well acquainted with their history, would have remembered that it was just 440 years earlier, exactly in that same seventh month, when Solomon dedicated his temple. Back in 1 Kings 8, you can read about that. So at this time, they gathered in the same month that Solomon had dedicated this temple, and they're looking at that same temple in front of them, and it's gone. It's in ruins. Again, you can imagine how they must have felt especially those who had seen that temple that Solomon had built. Not only were there doubts as to whether they might even finish the project, not only were they dejected about the drought that had taken place, not only were the threats of the enemies around them looming heavily again, but even if they did finish, they were certain that it would never be like the ornate and beautiful and magnificent temple that once stood there. And so, in just 26 days... After they began this project, they were ready to give up. They were ready to throw it in. Haggai begins his message in verse 3 by addressing the last concern in particular when he asks, Who remembers the first temple? Speaking of Solomon's. And how does this compare, how does this compare to that one? And I don't think Haggai was asking this to pour salt in our wound. Say, hey, yeah, look, look at what a mess this is. But I think he was essentially saying out loud what everybody was thinking. Or what many were thinking. Perhaps even some of the old timers were there saying, yeah, good luck with this. This one's never going to be as beautiful and wonderful as Solomon's was. And you know, beloved, we can find ourselves in the same place as them. We have these desires, these aspirations, these dreams, if you will, about where we would like to be in our walk with Christ, having victory over sins that maybe you've struggled with for a while, achieving some important spiritual milestones in your life, of having some dynamic ministry where you see God using you in amazing ways, or, or these dreams of having children who are all saved, or having this perfect marriage, or bringing many souls to the Lord, and, and then we look at our lives and see what's actually accomplished. We see maybe that we're nowhere near where we want to be. It can be easy to be discouraged, dejected, defeated. Or even as a church, you know, when we read passages like in Acts 2 and we see just how amazing it was, the early church and thousands of people are, are coming to Christ. The church is growing. There's this amazing love and unity expressed and needs are being cared for. And then, then we look at us. You know, and God is doing neat things here, but... But if we're to compare ourselves to that early church, it's hard not to say, why, why, why can't we look like that? You can be discouraged. Perhaps even wanted to say, oh, you know what? When I look at my situation in here, I see, I see disunity. I see conflict. 
I don't see thousands of people coming in the doors, coming to Christ. What's the use? And as the people of Judah, as they stood amidst the dirt and the rubble of the Temple Mount, they too were disheartened and just wanted to give up. But God says in verse 4, don't feel that way anymore. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Notice here in verses 4 and 5, he expresses this in three commands there where he says to take courage, to work, and to not be afraid. The first command, take courage, is actually repeated three times here. Notice he says it directly to the civic leader, Zerubbabel, and then he says it directly to the religious leader, Joshua, and then to all the people. He says three times, take courage, take courage, take courage. And that tells me that they were all discouraged. It wasn't just some of the people, but even the leaders were tempted to want to give up. So he says, take courage or be strong. It's a familiar command because it's the same one that God gave to Joshua when they were preparing to enter the land. Put yourself in Joshua's shoes. He watched the whole thing with Moses over the last 40 years. How excited do you think he was of leading that people into the land? let alone what they would face and having to, to deal with the enemies that they were going to encounter there. And so in Joshua 1.6, God says to him, Be strong, same word as that guy, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So we see here in God's command to Joshua and also the, his commands to instruction to the people of Judah, this command to be strong. And in that command, God isn't saying, all right, now, come on, you wimps, just suck it up and get with it. Get back to work. I told you to do it. Now get on it. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Stop whining. You can do this. That's not what he's saying when he's saying be strong. He's not telling them to rely on themselves. Or do it in their own strength. God said to Joshua, take courage. Why? Because I'm with you. And he says the same thing to the people of Judah here. In fact, he's emphatic about it. Notice in verse 4, he says, I am with you. And then again in verse 5, he says, my spirit is abiding among you. And it's based on his presence that he gives that third command at the end of verse 5. Don't fear. Don't be afraid of the opposition around you. Don't fear the obstacles that you are encountering and that you will encounter. Don't worry about your enemies. You just be strong. Take courage because I am with you. I'm with you. I will protect you. I will enable you. I will give you wisdom. I will direct you. I will comfort you. I will encourage you. I'm here. I am with you. I'm dwelling among you. Brings to my mind the, the psalm that Brad read from earlier, Psalm 46, which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present, that verb there, it's emphatic, and always present, ever present, always there in time of trouble. And then, therefore, we will not fear is the response of the psalmist, though the earth should, should quake and the mountains would fall into the sea. And so in all of this, we see this motivation here to be strong. It's to be strong and not fear because God was with them. They were to be encouraged by God's presence. Beloved, this is such a powerful motivation for us. 
powerful when you really think about it. Because remember, he has given the same promise to us. I mentioned it before, but it bears repeating the great commission, the mission, the mission, the purpose of the church to make disciples. And you remember how Christ ended that, because that's not going to be an easy task. But he says, lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. I am with you to the end of this thing. As you seek to live by Christ, by pursuing holiness and following his example, remember Jesus's promise in John 14 when he said, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And as you seek to depend on Christ rather than money or things, remember the words of Hebrews 13, 5, where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he goes on to say, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And as you see Christ in the difficult task of coming alongside a brother or sister who's in sin and confronting that sin, that's not easy to do. But remember what Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my, I am there in their midst. He's saying, you need to, to do that and know that I'm with you. Beloved, we're not alone in this. We're not alone. You're not alone in running the race. You're not alone in the walk of faith. We're not alone in following Christ. He is with you. He's with you. Let me say it one more time. He is with you. Such a simple statement, but it is a profound motivation to be encouraged. And he's not standing off on the side, like with you in the sense, yeah, I'm I'm around. I'll keep an eye on things. He's not like a, with us in the sense of a, being some motivational speaker, giving some pep talks. You know, you can do this. You can do this. He's not some cheerleader in the background. Go, you can do it. Don't worry. I wasn't a cheerleader. Um, but that's sometimes I think we think of it that way. Like I'm trudging along through life and, and God says he's around. He'll help me out a little bit, maybe can feel like that sometimes right we often see that in the psalms when people are going through difficulties and trials and struggles and a lot of times they say where are you god where are you god is with us and he's with us not just as a a voice of encouragement on the side he is with us to enable us to empower us to do what he's commanded us to do That's exactly what we saw in Haggai in the first message that the people responded. Notice it says in Haggai 1.14 there that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So we see in that is he's among us to empower us to do what he's called us to do. God was working through them to accomplish the task he had given them. But you know, beloved, we are so susceptible to forget this. We can be overwhelmed by sin or circumstances, by a difficulty or hardship. We forget God's presence. Or like I said, sometimes even wonder if he's even there. And then we try to either do things in our own power, depend on other people, or just give up. And again, that's what the people of Judah were tempted to do. And they were only on the job less than a month. And they were ready to throw it in. You kind of hear the shovels and hammers clanging to the side, right? As they're pitching them over. Oh, this is too hard. Now notice at the end of verse 5, God says there, My spirit is abiding in your midst. That reference to the Holy Spirit, the third member 
of the Trinity may come as a surprise to some. For, for many have this idea that, that the Holy Spirit, that God the Holy Spirit was not very active in the Old Testament. That He didn't really get busy until Pentecost. But actually that's not the case. The Holy Spirit was active from the very beginning. See in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the Spirit was hovering, moving over the surface of the waters at creation. Several times we see in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit empowering people to do certain tasks. One of which was related to building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. A man named Bezalel was given that responsibility. And it says there that the Spirit of God came upon him to enable him and empower him in that work and give him wisdom. Numbers 11.25 says that the Spirit of God came upon the 70 elders who assisted Moses. Throughout the book of Judges, we see this similar phrase stated over and over. The Spirit of God came upon him in reference to one of the judges who was carrying out a task or responsibility. Micah 3.8 indicates it is the Spirit who gave the prophets their messages. David said in 2 Samuel 23 that the Spirit of the Lord is who spoke by him as he wrote the Psalms. Nehemiah 9, verse 20, Isaiah 63, they both speak of the Holy Spirit dwelling in His people in the Old Testament, dwelling with His people and instructing them. There are many, many more examples in the Old Testament that show the Holy Spirit's active involvement among His people. And remember this, Old Testament saints could not get saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, right? It's not like after Christ's resurrection and ascension and Pentecost that now the Holy Spirit changes hearts. What did that mean for the Old Testament saint then? That they changed their own? No. Holy Spirit had to do that work. In fact, we see that in John chapter 3 when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about being born again. And he says there in verse 6 of chapter 3, born by his Spirit. This is before Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit is at work in hearts, transforming and converting It's been His work all through history. We also see from that, as a result, Holy Spirit was active among God's people before Pentecost. But then the question comes up. I quoted earlier from the verse Jesus talked about sending, asking the Father to send the Spirit when He leaves. Well, what does that mean then? Because that sounds like He's not here then. Well, I want you to look at John 14 for a minute. We're going to come back to Haggai. And I know this is a little bit of a side trail, but it's very important. We're going to talk more about this in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's very important that we understand it. Zechariah talks a lot about it. Here in John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They're in the upper room. He's offering them words of encouragement. He's talking about his soon approaching departure. And then he says in verse 16 of chapter 14, these words, again, this is something I quoted a moment ago. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Again, we see here that Jesus he speaks of sending the Spirit, asking the Father to send the Spirit after He departs. And when reading this passage, it's very important to note, we see several prepositions here, with, with, and in. Each of those words are different in the Greek. We need to pay attention to that and also to the, to the verb tenses here. And I'll explain what I mean in a second here. If we look back at the passage, notice he says, I will ask the Father and he will, future, right? He will give you another helper that he may be with you. Here the Greek word is meta, meaning in the midst of. 
that he may be in your midst forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides. What tense is that? He abides present, right? Again, with the word here is para. It means by your side. It's alongside. He abides presently alongside you. And then notice he says, and will be future in you. Another preposition in within. He'll be in you within you. So Jesus is saying here that spirit was presently abiding with them alongside them. And that at some point in the future, and we know that would be at Pentecost when the spirit came, that he would dwell within them. That permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit within his people. And as a result of that, the New Testament describes several additional things that work of the Holy Spirit within the church. Notice in verse 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he said that the Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes, that is, immerses believers in the body of Christ. He is the one who transforms our, our hearts and places us within the church. Not just in a physical building, but as part of God's people. A few verses earlier, 1 Corinthians twelve seven, it says that he gives specific spiritual gifts in order to equip the people of his church, the people in the body of Christ. In order to enable them to help one another become more like Christ. Ephesians 4.3 indicates it is the Spirit who brings unity in the church. And Ephesians 2.22, it is the Spirit who binds the church together. As it says, we're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so we see in the New Testament, the Spirit has this, this intimate indwelling and bringing together and holding together and, bring, and making us unified with one another in Christ. And the ministries that come along with that to edify us, to build us up. And so while the Holy Spirit was indeed active among God's people in the Old Testament to empower and encourage them, after Pentecost, he's active in a more profound and intimate way, an even greater way. And knowing this, I hope, and bringing this up again, should be a source of great encouragement. To know that God is even more involved, even more intimate, even more active within our lives. He is with us in an even more profound way, within us, within you. You can't be any more with a person than that. To indwell. And you know what? There's only one thing that gets in his way. To work in us, to work in your lives. What is that? Our sin. That's right. It's the only thing. It gets in the way of his work. And I hope that this reminder of God's intimate, empowering presence through his spirit would motivate you to to passionately pursue Christ, to flee sin and temptation, to seek holiness and let nothing hinder his work in your life. So Haggai, going back to Haggai, he shows the first motivation to be strong and to work without fear is to be encouraged by God's presence. The second motivation is in verses 6 through 9. And that's to be encouraged by his plan. By his plan. Notice in these verses, we're given a, a, an important, a key reason really, why God tells us the future. Why he gives us prophecy. And he doesn't give us prophecy so we can argue about the details. Okay, I'm in this camp, you're in that camp, alright. That's not the primary reason we have prophecy. It's not so that we then sit every day and compare to current events. It's not the primary reason we've been given prophecies. It's not even to show that primarily prove that he is God, that he can predict the future. 
Of course, it does reveal that he is God. But more often than not, God gives prophecy. He reveals the future in order to motivate his people, in order to encourage his people, in order to spur his people on to action, in order to give us hope, especially in the midst of trials. That's exactly what we see here. God raised up Haggai and Zechariah in order to spur them on to action. And he does that by telling what's going to come. And we see him begin to do that in verse 6. That's exactly what he is doing. Because he wants them to see, you know, this whole temple work, it's not just that I want some building and structure in Jerusalem. It's not that I'm just trying to think of something to keep you guys busy. No, this temple is part of a bigger plan. The ultimate plan, really. The plan to reveal his son in glory to the world. Because you think about when Christ returns, where is he going to return specifically on this earth? What place? In Judah, right? In Jerusalem, right? On the Mount of Olives, right? And when Christ comes on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 talks about that. His feet rest on the Mount of Olives, the very place where he left from. He moves into Jerusalem. He wipes out all his enemies. Guess where he's going to go? The temple. He's going to reside there. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, we're going to talk about that again in a minute. Verse 6, God says here, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I think he says once more here because he's just been talking of the first half of verse 5. He was speaking of God bringing the people out of Egypt. He led them to Mount Sinai. You remember when he gave the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, that there was a little bit of shaking happening at that point, right? He shook Mount Sinai. God's saying here, take courage, don't fear. I'm going to shake things up again. But this time, I'm not going to confine myself to a mountain range. This time, I'm going to shake the whole earth. I'm going to shake it all. Prophet Joel spoke of this in Joel 3.15 when he said that in the day of the Lord's final judgment, both heavens and earth would tremble, would shake. Writer of Hebrews he actually quotes Haggai 1, verse 6. This very verse in verse 6, he quotes it there. In fact, that's the only quotation of Haggai in the New Testament. And he brings it up in a warning section in Hebrews chapter 12. There were many considering walking away from Christ. And so he speaks of the shaking of Mount Sinai in reference to the law there. And he's talking about that. And then he says in Hebrews 12, verse 25, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, again, he's speaking at Sinai, much less will we escape when we turn away from him who warns from heaven. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. There's the quote from Haggai. And he goes on to say, this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can't be shaken, which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's making reference there to the time at Sinai when God shook that mountain, saying someday God's going to shake it all. And he's speaking here again in reference to final judgment and what is physical will be shaken away. The only thing that will remain after that shaking is what is eternal, the kingdom of God. 
You know, we often joke about the big one coming, don't we? In fact, I think there's some movie coming out regarding that. Again, how many California earthquake movies have there actually been? But you know, someday, someday the big one is coming. And it's going to shake a lot more than our homes here on the coast of California. (laughs) He's going to shake it all. I mean, you guys have been through earthquakes, right? We've had a few around here, some pretty decently sized ones. You realize like those quakes, the Northwest quake, the Silmar quake, the quake up in Alaska, those are just little dots on the planet. (laughs) God's going to render it all shaken and he's going to go beyond earth into the heavens. Peter talked about that. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Hey, wait a minute. That's physically impossible. If he starts ripping stars out of their orbit and stuff, the universe is going to collapse. Yeah, if God wasn't the one holding it together. It will all collapse. In terms of he's going to shake it all up, burn it all up. And as the writer of Hebrews says, there's only one safe haven in that day. That's in the kingdom of heaven, which cannot be shaken or burned up. Are you going to be in that kingdom? Are you going to be there? Have you confessed your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ genuinely sought his forgiveness? Do you see the fruit of his work in your life to show that you are one of his? Have you genuinely repented? Meaning, if you have a desire to turn from your sin, all of your sin, God will do the work, but you need to have the desire to to not want to pursue that anymore, but to follow Christ. That's why He came the first time. Give His life on the cross to die for sin, to pay for sin for any who would repent and believe. And He rose again to show that God accepted that payment. That He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the one who's going to shake the earth. He walked on it the first time. He's going to obliterate it the second time when he comes back. Where will you be? Will you be clinging on to something in this life? Or will you stand firm in the kingdom? It's important that we reflect and ask ourselves that. And God is saying to his people here in Haggai, he's saying, take courage. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. It's not always going to be like this for one day. I'm going to overhaul my universe. I'm going to shake it all up. And my house, which right now is in shambles, this house will be the house. It will be the one place in in all the earth. It will be the center of the earth, the central place to be. One day, my house will be the place that everyone wants to come to. One day, my house will be a glorious house of worship. That's the picture he begins to paint in verse 7 as he describes here the, the peoples of the nations bringing their treasures, their, their valuable, their precious things to the temple so that it will be fl- filled with splendor as in the days of old. There's a word there at a New American Standard that translates as wealth. And it's a word that means desire. Historically, that phrase has been translated as the desired of all nations will come. And that's interpreted to be the Messiah. And indeed, that could be the case. Charles Wesley took it that way in that wonderful hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, where he says, A dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Again, it could be the Messiah, but 
As Calvin and many others have pointed out, both grammatically and contextually from the passage, that word desire is more likely desired things. In other words, the valuable or the precious. Notice in verse 8, he mentions precious metals, gold and silver. Verse 3, he was talking about the splendor of the temple and he was speaking about its physical appearance. So I think here that he's mentioning it's the wealth of the nations. That would be the correct translation. That the nations are bringing their valuable things as an act of worship. That's what we see in Zechariah 14, 14 as it talks about the wealth of the nations in the millennial kingdom. They're gathered coming to worship Christ at his temple. But he doesn't confine himself to that. For it is that time in history when the Messiah dwells in the temple. He turns his attention to in verse 9 when he says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And I shall give peace. When he says latter glory here, I don't think he's referring to Herod's temple. Indeed, it was a uh, beautiful and ornate work. Remember the disciples and they talked about it. They said, man, this, this is amazing, this place. But that temple only lasted for 50 years and then it was destroyed by the Romans. Verse 9 is speaking of the millennial temple, the temple that is yet to be built at that same place, on that same site. And the glory that he speaks of here is his glory, his presence filling the temple. It's something that the prophet Ezekiel spoke often about. In fact, in Ezekiel 43 and 44, it talks about God's glory filling the temple. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel was somebody they would have, many of them, personally known or at least heard about because he prophesied in the days of the exile. From the beginning of the exile to you know somewhere around the middle, was Ezekiel's ministry. And his ministry was centered often around this idea of God's glory in the temple. He spoke of God's glory leaving the temple and that one day it would return. It would be a magnificent place. And I think many of them were familiar of that. They would have known about his messages. They knew many of these things already, actually. Again, we're speaking of those, many of the prophets had already spoken, already come through. A lot of the prophecies, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew that God would again restore his people one day. They knew that God would again dwell in his temple. They knew these things. But you know what? They needed to be reminded because they were looking around them and allowing what they saw and what they felt to determine their response rather than what they knew to be true. And that brings us really to the point of God's message here. He's telling them, remember, you're part of something bigger here. Something you can't see the full extent of right now. Right now I want you to focus on the task of rebuilding my house. And that's just part of a bigger plan I have. To use this house as a place where my glory would fill and that my son would be honored. That the Messiah would be king and reign. And what seems to you now is so paltry and and insignificant and, and such a difficult task. What seems to you is like this hopeless enterprise. I want to remind you one day my glory is going to burst forth from this place. I want to remind you that, that my majesty is going to blaze from this temple My Messiah, my son is going to reign from here and his glory is going to shine brighter than anything you have ever seen. Remember that it's coming. You're part of something that is magnificent, way beyond what you can imagine. 
And just so they'd have no doubt about that, did you notice how many times in verses 6 through 9 he repeats, declares the Lord of hosts? Five times. He doesn't just say declares the Lord. The Lord of hosts. That phrase which we see most often in Haggai and Zechariah is a reference to the fact that he's almighty, he's the sovereign, the all-powerful Yahweh. That's who's telling you these words. And you know, as we search for a connection of this message to us, know this, beloved, that the work you do for Christ now may not seem like much. There may be little fruit. It may be challenging and difficult. You may find that the things you're trying to do to serve the Lord just don't seem to be producing that much. You try to bring up the Lord in conversation and people are ignore you, make fun of you, tease you, don't respond. Maybe you envisioned yourself being used in these great and dynamic ways and having an effect on thousands of people and, and that's just not happening. Maybe God's given you something a little different. But don't be discouraged. Keep going. As one pastor put it, I think very well, you build more than you see. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep serving one another. Keep edifying the saints. Keep exercising your gifts. Keep on pursuing holiness. Keep following Christ. Keep doing everything for His glory. Keep building the kingdom in these ways, both small and large. Because remember this. Do you realize someday, someday you're going to see exactly what God was describing here in verse 9. You're going to see it. Think about that a moment. You someday will see the radiance of His glory bursting out of that temple. Someday you will be on a stroll with other believers towards the temple mount and go into that temple and see Christ face to face. Sinless perfection, glorified bodies that He's given to worship Him. You're going to see it. Unhindered worship. (laughs) Someday you will draw near to Christ in that way. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be there because you're part of a kingdom that won't be shaken. So take courage. Press on. Do not fear. Do the work that God has given you to do because God is with you and His kingdom is coming. And when that day arrives, and I am, I'll I'll bet everything I have on this. When that day comes, and you see him, you're going to say it was worth it. I know you're going to say that. It's worth all of it. There's a hymn which says those words, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I think it would be appropriate to sing as a prayer, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You don't have to get up. Just stay seated there and let's sing, sing it together. We do look forward 
to that day, O Lord, long for that day when we'll see you face to face. We know you are with us now. We know that you are here. We look forward to experiencing and embracing that in an even more significant, powerful way when we aren't cluttered and clouded and hindered by sin and lack of understanding, apathy even, when all that will be swept away. Lord, move in us now. Encourage us, motivate us to think what you are building, Lord. As, Lord, as we are involved in that, that we build more than we can see. And Lord, give us a, just a encouragement to keep going, to keep serving you, even in the midst of challenges and difficulties. Lord, root out any sin in our life that is part of those hindrances. May we be holy and vessels, holy vessels, useful in your service. We thank you. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this encouragement, this reminder. We need it, Lord, every day. May we redeem the time you have given, Lord, to serve you. In Christ's name, amen.